There are events in the lives of every generation that are so profound, so life-altering, so etched into our memories that when we look back, even decades later, we remember exactly where we were and what we were doing when we got the news. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. My brother and I were listening to Dinosaur Show on the radio, and they, they announced that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. Of course, we had no idea where Pearl Harbor was. Playing football down at Westlawn Park, all of a sudden we noticed the neighbors and the houses around the park coming out on their porches. And I yelled over and said, What's the matter? How come all you people are out there screaming at one another? And I said, Well, the Japs just bombed Pearl Harbor. I was sitting in the living room with, at my parents' home, and uh, we heard the about Pearl Harbor. When we found out that the country was going to be at war, naturally we were concerned. Both of us were about that age. We cried, all of us boys, because we all knew it was going to have to go. And when they said go, we went. And the country went with us. I'd never been out of the state of Kansas but one time, and that was in the Kansas City. Before, I had no idea how big our country really is, or how beautiful it is. Dad and mother were farmers, and uh, so I lived on that farm and, until, uh, I guess, I went to the service. My dad folks lived in Oklahoma City, as far as I ever went until. It was amazing to see how how wonderful, beautiful this country is, and how people was all uh, united. We was all united. My brother and I both enlisted in the Marine Corps. My brother was 14 months younger than I, but he was kind of the instigator, the leader of our group. On November the 20th, 42, I enlisted. And uh, they called me to active duty on the 13th of March. My twin brother and I, we signed up and had the dad sign the paper so we can get in the Navy. I had enlisted in the Army Air Corps. I had been told it was the most fascinating thing I could do. It was probably the most dangerous single service. We registered for the draft and I had a low number, not terribly low, but it was low and uh so a lot of my schoolmates were already uh, drafted. You know, when you're just 18 years old, and they tell you, go, you go. You know, ain't question it. We were sent down to San Antonio, and I was immediately, my training began. Got orders to go to Bakersfield, California, and I was sent to Tulare, California, to fly a, a, a Stearman uh, aircraft, a PT, what they called it. 
PT uh, 17. Got on the Pullman train of all things. There were four of us that went to San Diego. Took two and a half days by train, Pullman train at that. I thought the Marine Corps is pretty great. They travel like the first class. Found out differently after you get to boot camp. That was an education in itself. And then I went to Cadbury School and uh, became a, a corporal there in the Cadbury. And I just loved every minute of it. And I learned more there than I think I learned the 18 previous years of my life. I had an uncle in World War One and told me that uh, you ought to get in the Navy or the, or the Air Force because you have a place to sleep instead of a foxhole. I... Uh, uncle, who was a machine gunner in the 35th Division in World War One, uh, I had listened to his war story so long as a boy growing up that I thought, boy, that's the place for me. And so I wanted to go in the Army. But I remember my drill instructor and what he said in a real deep, gravelly voice. He says, my name is Lynn, Gunnery Sergeant Lynn. From here on for the next three months, I will be your mother, your father. And, and he he proved it. He was everything he said he'd be. But when we got through, we were Marines. The lessons that we learned there probably saved a lot of our lives. It was all excitement to me. It was a, it was a complete different. But I had a hard time because I was a twin. And we were separated after boot camp. He went one way, and I never saw him again until 1946. When you just join a squadron, you don't get to lead the squadron right away. You're a wingman, and your job as a wingman is to protect your leader. Reorganize this new outfit, the 1574th Engineers, and one of our many tasks uh, was building bridges of various kinds. Our job was to go in with the invasion keep the beachhead clean, and any other ship that got hit would take them in tow, like a battleship or a cruiser. We went to Iwo Jima, and in the initial landing, our, our job was the 28th Marines were assigned to split the island and then head north to the mountain, Mount Suribachiyama. And I got about halfway across the island, and that's when I got hit by mortar shrapnel and was evacuated. Was aboard a hospital ship on the fourth day when they raised the flag and tooted the horns and rang bells and everything and made a big issue of it. Still have a piece of mortar in my back of my neck, my Japanese souvenir. They told us that if we got 25 missions finished, uh, we could be excused and we could go home. Well, <laughs> Uh, I finally got an eight, <laughs> and the one that I got it on was a raid on the Kiel submarine base, and we had to bail out 27,000 feet into the Baltic. We had to go to shore, and the Atlantic craft had brought the big equipment in. We was uh, getting ready to tow that off the beach. The shells were going off, personnel shells was going off explodes over the beachhead. Some of us got hit, and I got hit in my arm there with a piece of shrapnel. You don't think about getting hurt or anything like that. You know, you're invincible when you're that age. You all know that. It, uh, 
if an accident's going to happen or somebody's going to get hurt, it's going to be the other guy. It's not going to be you. On the way down, I was just floating down. I could see the shoreline going farther and farther away because the wind was blowing. When I hit the water, it was extraordinarily cold. That was the problem. Uh, I could swim. The only hope I had was a marker buoy, obviously, in a shipping lane. I know I lost two real good friends. One boy I went all the way through flying school with, and he was shot down in Angio. The other boy lost his life in Sicily. When we made our landings, you know, you... You had all your gear on, your all your combat gear, your helmet and everything else, when you had to climb down a cargo net into a landing craft. And that was probably the most difficult thing to do because the ship was a sway in. You come down that net, the little landing craft is at the bottom, and it's swaying. And so you got that in concern. You got to keep your weapon dry. You got all your pack on your back. I think that was about as rough a part until you got to the end and had to jump off and waist-deep water and wade in because the landing craft couldn't go any further. Some of the guys didn't make that. He never got close to somebody. But I did. I made a mistake and we lost him. And uh, we was, um, Maynard was his name. He took, he was been in the Navy a couple of years before the war. And I was just a kid that came aboard, you know, just, he took me under his wing and I, I, I Hang one into him. Well, he lost his life, and it was hard to readjust. We was tied up the two ships together in Pearl Harbor. We were stepping in between the ships, and he fell between, hit his head, and I jumped in behind him. And when I went down there, that just dark as it could be, and engine roaring and everything, and I said to myself, "What am I doing down here?" I was after my buddy. I couldn't see nothing. I came back up. Two other guys went down. We could not find him. From there on, I never got close to nobody because it's so hard when you lose a close friend. When I was at a stage where I couldn't feel my legs anymore, reaction was of regret because I was I was married and I already knew that my wife was pregnant, and uh, I wouldn't be going home. But he went. He went in the Marine Corps. Was it? at Guadalcanal, the first action of our service. And he was at Peleliu when the 1st Marine Division hit there, and, and of course at Okinawa, and that's where he was killed, in Okinawa, his third action. And then we had to pick up the bodies and stack them all over the side, you know, and, and, and that, was, that was pretty hard to do. It was completely different what I thought I was going to get to serve. A fishing boat showed up. It's a German fishing boat. They used their binoculars, and apparently they spotted me in the air. That's what probably saved my life. As uh, the uh, uh, enemy got closer, and you whipped that airplane around to the right or left as tight as you could, I didn't know for sure whether I'd got him or not, because I had to break off and, and get back to my leader and uh, protect him, but uh, another pilot did uh, verify that uh, I did. The Germans, they were sending over these V-2, which was a uh, silent marauder, go over the English Channel and come down, and they didn't know where it would come down. 
and those things were just landing all over over there. And you, and when it hit you, boom, you know, a big explosion. Those were scary. You lose contact with who you're supposed to be with, and it's a mass confusion. Marinko had another name for it, but we uh, we made it. We we stumbled across it. There's no stopping. Thing about the Air Force, you didn't come home on a cripple. Usually, you either come home or you didn't come home. They first of all were sent to a hospital. After that, they sent me to a. It was, it, there was connected to this hospital. There was a military base, and uh, I had two weeks of interrogation. That was a little rough. Came to Stalag Group Three, and there, there was a better scene than I expected. The guy who was in charge of my incarceration, he began to console me. He says, look at it this way. For you, the war is over. And I feel very fortunate to get out of five major engagements. I'm a lucky one. The heroes are still over there. And boy, there's where you wonder, am I proud to be a human being or not? They would do the one like this to one another. It's unbelievable. I left that cemetery. I was different. I'm no longer a kid. You're getting your friends shot up and torn up and hauled away. And it's something you don't want to remember and you try not to. But there's no forgetting. As I look at the boys we lost, uh, I, it still runs in my mind why why them and not me? It's it's difficult to understand sometimes how God works, but God knows what He's doing. The people in it don't, and I thank Him for blessing me, watching over me when I was a sinner. He 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 was. You just have to have faith. Mm-hmm. It's not my work. It's a gift for Him. It's a gift. It's nothing what I've done. And I thank him for that. I think what happened to me at Stalag Three, I got into a room, a group, that was remarkable. It was truly remarkable. We had a Scottish Presbyterian minister who was a fighter. There was one. He probably changed my philosophy of life. A man who says that he doesn't believe in God and tells you he's been in war, has never been in a foxhole. It's been said many, many times, there are no atheists in a foxhole, and I believe that. The, the problem is that after you get out of the foxhole, it's so easy to forget who got you out. Have that faith. Don't lose it. You feel, I, I wonder where God is sometime. It, it's a peace of mind knowing to believe. I found out that I was a helper in that prison camp. I didn't know that. You don't do anything on your own. If you don't think that God's doing it for you, just look around. Who puts the people there to help you? In my case, and and for example, back on the battlefield, God provided the medics, the 
corpsmen as we called them. And those guys were great. Great. I don't fear death one bit. I just hate to leave my wife. And God's put me here for some reason. And I'll find out when I go home. I'm not a hero. I was just one of 16 million people that were there at that particular time. I was only one small part of that. But I'm proud of it. It was the ladies who had received missing in action letters that were the real heroes or heroines of World War II. I had the honor in my life, one of the biggest honors, I had been sent back to the 10th replacement depot to get some special parts for the tanks just a few miles outside the west side of Paris. And I was in Paris when the war ended, and it was the most exciting thing I ever saw in my life. And there were five million people in the streets of Paris that night, B.E. Day, May 8th, 1945. I'll be 89 just coming July the 2nd. And I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones that got to come home. And I got to see my twin brother. He made it. He, he lucked out. So he got to come home, too. But the guy who liberated us was old Patton, his 14th brigade, tank brigade. <laughs> and all at once, big O, it, there was a tank, and it ran right over the front gate and came in. <laughs> it was so shocking because it was so sudden. But I think what it really was that we realized that we were free. I was overseas 21 months, but I was, I was, I hadn't seen uh, my girlfriend for 23. When I got out of the Navy, I almost stayed in. But I met my wife. She was an Army cadet nurse. And we got married in 1946, and we're still together. After I got out of service, I came back here to Topeka, and you know, it's two years after the war, and most of the big jobs were filled. I was determined I was going to get a job with security involved. I, I applied for the police department, fire department, telephone company, Santa Fe Railroad, Morrell Packing Company, uh, everything else that was available around here, and the police department called first. So I spent 26 years on the Topeka Police Department. I ended up after 26 years as chief of police and retired from there. When I got home, you know what it was like in 44. Things were in short supply. Took a train back to Kansas City. And I was able to tell my wife that uh, we were coming to Kansas City at a certain time and she was there. And there was a little boy, 21 months older. <laughs> Cutest little kid I ever saw. <laughs> I come home by boat, and I had already called uh, uh, Delray. That's my girlfriend, and uh, we had written letters, and uh, we both had agreed we were going to get married as soon as possible. Got on the bus and came out West Tenth Street and got off at Tenth and Washburn, and I walked up that two and a half blocks to my house, and it was in the morning. And I uh, came up on the porch, and, and I knew that house so well. And in those days, we didn't lock our doors. I knew the door would be open, and I opened that door, and I said, Hey, Mom! Mom! And she was out in the kitchen. And, oh, man, 
I can't describe it. There's no way to describe it, feeling like that. Uh, what you need to do, to do is to take the circumstances and uh, consider them to be an opportunity in disguise. The holidays, all the holidays have a meaning and what they originated for, and I think people have gotten away from that. Now they're just a three-day holiday for people. Fourth of July, that's the establishment of our nation, the nation, the greatest nation on earth, the nation which we in this, as this country, and since my time, we've fought six wars for. There have been six wars since my war. This country was founded on faith and independent. We have the freedom. Let's don't lose it. Let's don't lose it. Wasn't that a great video? Yeah, Scott May put that together. He went through all the eight hours of, uh, of interviews and punched it down to 20 minutes. And Scott, great job. We're thankful for you here. You know, as you hear uh, these men, these five men from our area going through the trial of war, trial of war and hearing their stories, it, it kind of connects us to what we've been going through as a church as we've gone through Second Timothy and uh, tonight I want to call your attention to another prisoner of war, a prisoner of war named Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was in a dungeon in Rome, and uh, he would be tried and sentenced and literally beheaded. He would give his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we join him in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Would you read that along with me? It says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people, imposters, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let's just pause there. What is Paul saying to us? Here's one prisoner of the ultimate supernatural spiritual war between good and evil as he's a prisoner in this war to an emperor named uh, Nero at the time. Just in this dungeon, we would all look at it and go, he lost, he lost. And yet with Christ, he was victorious. And we would see a man who is martyred or beheaded for his faith. And we would say, what a waste. And yet through Christ, he lives. He lives. And God wins through even death. And Paul says here in verse 12, take a look at that again. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, underline that, will be persecuted. Anyone who wants to play a part in the battle for good and evil... You will be persecuted. Our world says, especially here in the United States, that 
following Jesus is easy. And that once you accept Jesus into your heart, everything's easy. All your bad days will go away and everything will be good. And what Paul is really showing us the reality is, is we're in, when we're on God's side, we're going to experience trials. So he's going to teach us now. He's going to show us how do you endure through trials? Because Paul did that. He endured through the trials of persecution. And you as a follower of Christ in a world of evil, and this world is evil, Whatever you want to think of it, (laughs) the scriptures call it evil. And you are on, if you are a believer in Christ, you are on the side of good. And so we're called then to endure through trials. Paul shows us the first thing to do. How do we endure through trials? Keep learning from the word. Keep learning from the word. Uh, Look at verse 14. It says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. What Paul is saying is we need to keep learning because during trials, we easily forget. When your try, your faith is, is tested, your faith also must be growing. It must be growing. That's why if you uh, began as, as, um, as Timothy did in the scriptures, if you grew up in church, you can't just say, well, I learned that when I was a kid. If you learned the Bible stories uh, when you were a kid, you can't just say, well, yeah, I've got that foundation and, and not build upon it. You have to grow deeper. You have to have to grow deeper in the word and keep learning. It never stops. It never stops. I grew up in the church and I continue to seek the scriptures because what do we find when we seek the scriptures? We find God, find out who he is. We're informed who he is. We're also shown who we are. And then it interprets the whole world around us. We need that when we're kids, but we also need that when we're adults. So you can't just go passive with the word. You got to keep growing. Some of you have just graduated from high school and it will be tempting for you to take your Bible and put it up on a shelf and get back to it when you get married and start having kids again, because that's what a lot of people do. You need the scriptures to keep informing you through college because your mind is going to be stimulated. Your mind's going to be taught. It was, some of it will be truth. Some of it will be error. You need the word of God to guide you through that. When you're under trial, what do you do? I, um, this reminds me of just what happened to each one of these men in this story and as well as 16 million others who on December, December 7, 1941, were called into action and they boarded trains and they left everything behind. And to these high school and college guys, it changed everything from small town Kansas to a worldwide effort to defend freedom. And they had to, in a short time, have to learn how to fight together in battle. And so they prepared for the challenges. They started learning in something we call boot camp. They joined in a company of others and they learned from their leaders how to do battle. They started joining in with others and joining a company and uh, marching together and walking together and, and doing things in a coordinated, under authority so that battles could be organized and, and uh, trials could be approached and confronted. They learned. And from this learn, learning experience, they learn how to survive in battle and win in battle. 
You know, we are called to the same effort in a world of trials to continue to learn from the word. Paul says here, it's all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, because it is literally breathed out from the mouth of God, his word to us. God speaks to us through his word. Keep learning. And so you must keep learning to know who God is and who you are so that you can rightly understand and respond to the world and the trials around you. Secondly, to endure trials, you need to keep living the goodness of God. These aren't things that we just say, oh yeah, I learned that and, and, and that's all. It sounds good. And I would say that's true to me. We have to keep, we have to live it. We have to live the goodness of God. Paul says that the person of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. You need to learn and know the, know God through the scriptures, but you also need to live it by following him. Why? Because trials will make or break you. And God's will is for each one of us to defeat evil by living his goodness in our lives. Marines understood this in Iwo Jima because they landed on this island in, in February of 1945. And the Japanese changed the way they were fighting our troops. Instead of uh, just doing, you know, massive uh, uh, moving of guys into battle, they, they dug these, these underground caves, 11 miles worth of caves. They were ready for this attack. And they allowed our Marines to get on, on the coast. And after they got on the beach and they get that last, then they opened up and just picked them off. It's, it's amazing. 22,000 U.S. troops were uh, casualties at that time. 6,000 died uh, fatally and, and then the other 16,000 were wounded. You heard one of the stories in our, in our video tonight. The Japanese, however, 22,000 died and only 216 of them surrendered. Their code was to never surrender. Their code was, we're going to die fighting. And they had their general uh, ordered them all to uh, agree to eight principles of courage that it would be a disgrace if you gave up fighting. So they literally fought to their death. This picture shows some Marines fighting for good in a very evil, evil environment. They got to see, many of them got to see that victory. Why do we keep living the goodness of God in an evil culture? Because we're assured God will win. We're assured that. I've read the end of the the book and folks, we win. Okay. Revelation says we win. And so we, it may not happen in our lifetimes, but that's the promise of God. That's why we live for truth. We win. We win. God will win. And he uses us to advance the gospel in a dark world. And here are the, our troops in the Philippines as they receive the news of VJ, of victory in Japan, and they celebrate the news. See, enduring trials requires that I keep living the goodness of God. Trials bring, trials are going to bring us all anger because life's not going out the way we want it to. Trials uh, are going to give us frustration. They're going to make us feel in despair. They're going to cause us to have fear or to be anxious in life. Trials do that. But 
in an environment of trials, we have the very spirit of God that lives and resides in us, who calls us to follow God in his goodness so that even during a trial, not just on our great days, we can have God's love, his joy, his peace, peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Just like Galatians 5.22 says. That's why we endure by living out the goodness of God. Folks, in an evil world, live the goodness of God. Jesus said it this way, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So we keep learning and we keep living the goodness of God and then we keep leading others to Christ. Look at what Paul says in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. See what he says? Always, always be ready. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill the reason you're here. You're, you're a minister. You're an ambassador of God. And obey your orders because there's victory. There's victory in the hearts and the lives of people who trust in Christ. Keep leading others. Winston Churchill was a leader. He was a leader of Great Britain, prime minister during World War II. And as the Nazi bombs were falling on London, he addressed the whole citizenship of Great Britain, and he said this. By the way, I'm going to read it. It it sounds like this great leader would would just be have an incredible voice and be a great orator. But I'm going I listened to his voice this week and it didn't sound very engaging. I'm going to read it and try to impersonate how he read it to England. He said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. (laughs) Sounds boring, doesn't it? But yet all of England caught that we shall never surrender. He crafted a vision to lead England at that time. He says this, let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Do you realize Do you realize that the gospel has been given to our generation? You are part of that generation. There's no other generation right now. You are that generation to advance the gospel. We are called to lead others to Christ. We are Christ's ambassadors. We're not to go passive with it. We're to keep leading others to it. So keep advancing the gospel. Keep leading people to Christ against the forces, against the gospel, as Paul would say. This is our finest hour. 
to advance the gospel in our lifetime. Keep learning the word of God. Keep living the goodness of God. Keep leading others to Christ. And then keep longing for God's reward. Look at what he says in verse 6 of chapter 4. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see this? Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. He learned it. He lived the gospel and the goodness of God, and he led others to it, and then he longed to be with Christ in heaven. See, that's that's where our true home is. And, and um, each one of these men who shared their story, they longed to be home. They wanted to fight this battle and go home. That needs to be the heart of a soldier of Jesus Christ, that we endure this battle right now because we get to go home to be with Christ. The greatest confidence you can have is the confidence facing death, that you will be with Christ, with eternal life through him. Norman Rockwell, the American artist, uh, just crafted images of of servicemen coming home after World War II. Here's one of them. Look at the, look at mom. You see her? She's very apparent. You just catch her emotion when you look at that. You see brother from the tree there. You see an uncle probably working on the roof there. And everybody sees him come home. Remember this? Some of you saw it on the Saturday evening post. There's his girlfriend. Do you see her? Remember in our video, Della Ray? <laughs> That's a picture that kind of shows it. Another one is a closer view of the facial expressions of one coming home. Coming home for the holidays. You see the, the expressions on the family. It just shows you a picture of a home, of appreciation. Here's another one that just shows a, a soldier back together with his friends and family, sharing stories after the trial of war, encouraging and appreciate them. You endured, you've made it. It's blessed to be alive. See, those are the stories you see by coming home. Paul said, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, and he opens up his arms to us, the church now in 2013, but for all who loved his appearing. Do you love it? Do you look forward to the appearing of Christ? Do you have his confidence? You long for it. And only with the confidence of Christ can you long for his return. Are you ready to meet Christ? See, this is a battle where you have to have the confidence of Christ. You can prepare for this war by seeing and finding Jesus Christ. See, that's why all the sacrifice of these men show us even a greater sacrifice that we're all called to. And that's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who loved us so much that he died on a cross to defeat evil and to secure good forever and ever and ever. That's why everything we do here is about the cross, because it shows us the sacrifice of Christ and it calls us to Christ. It calls us to Christ in a very simple way, just like you receive a gift. That's what salvation is through Christ. 
It's God offering his son the work you need. The only one who lived a perfect life, the only one who, when he died, secured eternal life and defeated all evil through his death. We all must have Christ. And you can receive it by simply recognizing your sin, turning from it, and turning to Christ. Scriptures call it repent and believe. Turn from your sin, turn to Christ. That's how it's, how it's received. And, and it can be a simple prayer where you go, God, you know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I must trust in what you've done. It's not in what I'm doing. It's what you've already done. It's not what I'm trying to do. It's me trusting in you, the only one who can save me. And in a simple prayer of faith that turns from your sin to trust Christ, you can have the confidence of Jesus Christ. A lot of these guys going into battle had no idea what would face them. You're in a battle right now. And the only way you can have confidence is through Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you to respond to him right now. Don't leave this place tonight without the confidence of Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray for every person here that as they endure the trials of life, they would be secure in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to this world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.